With mindfulness meditation, we recognize the importance of attitude towards mental contents, allowing and letting be, as a way of approaching with curiosity and kindness whatever shows up in the mind. And so in allowing and, and letting be, we can develop a different relationship to emotions and even to sensations in our body. And that relationship is one that I've understood based on what people say coming out of classes when you, when you ask them or qualitative studies that have been published. The two big takeaways that people report are thoughts are not facts and depression is not me. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. My guest today is the renowned clinical psychologist and contemplative researcher, Zindel Siegel. Zindel was one of the developers of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, also known as MBCT, which we'll hear a lot more about in today's show. For decades, he's used this program to bring relief to those who suffer from depression by training mindful awareness. And in addition to this clinical work, Zindel has also undertaken rigorous research to study the effectiveness of MBCT and helped us understand why it works. Our conversation begins with his early experiences, both in meditation and psychology. And then we get into how he came to develop MBCT and the ways it's evolved over time. We talk about the process of seeing thoughts as thoughts and the power of cultivating a particular attitude towards our mental experience, one of curiosity, kindness, and allowing, and staying with difficult experiences rather than distracting ourselves away from them. Then Zindel shares some of the clinical research on MBCT for depression. We talk about its effectiveness compared to antidepressant medication and what we know and don't know about how antidepressants work. We also talk about the importance of becoming aware of internal bodily sensations and what he calls sense foraging. We also talked about this in the episode with Norm Farb. And Zindel reflects on using digital platforms to increase accessibility to mindfulness training, how MBCT can shift our sense of self and identity, and how meditation practice has changed him. Zindel also offers a short guided meditation in this episode, which was a wonderful treat for me in the middle of an interview, and hopefully it will be for you too. If you or someone in your life suffers from depression, I really encourage you to dive into this episode and maybe share it with others who could benefit. There are a lot of great insights here about the key factors and mindset shifts that seem to be most effective, not only in treating clinical depression, but also just dealing with negative thoughts in general which is something we all experience. There's much more from Zindel in the show notes, including talks, research papers, and links to resources he's developed for those who are struggling with depression. Zindel is truly one of the leaders in contemplative science. His work has had huge impact, and he's been in the field since the early days, so it was wonderful to have a chance to chat with him. I hope you enjoy this conversation and get as much out of it as I did. It's my pleasure to share with you Zindel Siegel. I'm so pleased to be joined today by Zindel Siegel. Zindel, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Pleasure to be here, Wendy. Thank you. I'd love to hear a little bit of your personal story to begin and kind of how you got interested in clinical psychology and then more in the mindfulness direction. Where did that start for you? It started at McGill um, when I was doing my undergraduate work there and ended up going to become initiated in transcendental meditation and living in two worlds, really, the, the world of empirical science and evidence and also the world of meditation and somewhat, I think, at that time, exotic practices related to soul travel and all kinds of things that were sort of in the air um, you know, the initiation in transcendental meditation had a, a flower ceremony. It had a, a mantra, a, a secret Sanskrit word. And my courses at McGill had a very different take on things. And what happened was that McGill and the empirical world won out because, in part, I was interested in the methodologies, which were much more pragmatic at that point, And also because I felt that the experiences that I had in, in TM they started to really diverge 
um, into practices that were increasingly, you know, I don't want to be judgmental, but they just didn't speak to me experientially around special powers, around achievements, around like levitation and increasing need for deepening practices tied to a financial base. Mm. So I was able to sort of step away from that with, I think, a bit of an insider understanding of of meditation and and the, the prospects of a a contemplative view, but uh, really dove headlong into clinical psychology, psychopathology, psychotherapy, and didn't really revisit that uh, very much. I, I, I had a fledgling practice, which I kept up with for a little bit, but stepped away from it. And then re-entered the world of contemplative practices as a cognitive therapist. And uh, an unusual way in, I think, because it was a rediscovery in some ways of some of the aspects of contemplative practice, which were validated, ironically, because I found them in moments of therapy. Do you think that your earlier experiences with TM and those kind of practices, did that steer you towards psychology as a way of studying the mind? Like, did that begin your interest in what's going on in the mind? And then you kind of jumped into the more academic path? Um, I think that they were both operating on on me and, and, and my choices at the same time. I mean, I was interested in that whole direction, practicing Tai Chi and understanding the capacities of the mind and maybe even, even some of the hidden capacities of the mind. But I think from a phenomenological point of view, I wasn't really connecting with the, the promise and prospects of what those paths were able to uh, speak about. I mean, I was able experientially to connect with the calm, the relaxation, and to some extent, a view that's a little bit less striving and doing oriented. Mm. But then they started to diverge. And, and maybe it's because those practices at that point were trying to speak to, you know, someone in their early 20s and, and needed to sort of promise fireworks to keep people still practicing or believing. <laughs> but the more fireworks, the less credibility. Interesting. So you studied clinical psychology then without really any contemplative uh, interaction. And, you know, of course, you famously have been uh, one of the founders of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, a very successful um, therapeutic approach. So were there other approaches being developed prior to then adding the mindfulness in, or how did that come to evolve? Well, it's interesting. That came out of a struggle with different factions inside uh, psychotherapy and inside uh, psychopathology and inside depression, really. So I kind of stepped away from a lot of the contemplative world in terms of practices. I still read a little bit here and then I, I was aware of it. I was familiar with it. But the energies that I had when I graduated and started to work in the area were really to try to validate the prospect of psychological treatments being helpful in depression and anxiety. At that time, the counter narrative really was that these were biological disorders, heavily brain-based, and therefore required brain and physical types of interventions like medications, mm -hmm. and uh, that there really was very little room for psychotherapy. And in those days, a lot of the therapies had a very psychodynamic bend to them, and that group of people was always skeptical of evidence and always skeptical of evaluation and felt that many of the, the truths they worked by were fairly self-evident. And so I was, once again, I think fueled by the, the, the energy of belonging to a faction that was trying to show cognitive therapy, a, a talk therapy in a lot, of, a lot of ways could be effective in helping these folks to learn how to manage their symptoms and also to continue to manage themselves and their mood disorder once they were no longer in treatment. And there were some really interesting studies around the same time I did a postdoc that showed some hint of equivalence between cognitive therapy and antidepressant medication. Hmm. And so this fueled a very fertile intellectual debate between sort of the, the quote, forces of <laughs> biological psychiatry <laughs> and the forces of uh, psychotherapy and cognitive therapy and increasingly melding with questions that I think a lot of contemplative practices take up themselves, like wellness, personal agency, emotion regulation. And those things seem to provide more of a land bridge, I think, between 
my interests than I'd previously encountered. Hmm. Can you share a little bit about the development of MBCT, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and just how that came to pass? Yeah. So there I was, you know, firmly ensconced running a cognitive therapy unit, offering 16 to 20 sessions of cognitive therapy for people with depression and dealing with, you know, psychiatry and and some of the, the narratives that were floating around. And at the time, I received a very small grant from the MacArthur Foundation to develop a companion form of cognitive therapy for people who had recovered and were looking to stay well. Because as we know, depression itself is often a recurrent and chronic disorder that can keep coming back into people's lives. That's one of the difficulties it presents. And uh, a lot of the focus, understandably, was on how to get people better because depression does carry a higher higher risk for suicide, self-harm, and other other outcomes. So, you know, you, you really want to help to restore people to a place of better functioning. But then once they're there, there's still a risk for relapse and recurrence. And there was another therapy called interpersonal psychotherapy, which had published an influential paper showing that if you modify interpersonal therapy for people in recovery by giving it to them once a month and focusing on the the sort of ongoing hassles or difficulties that people have, you can keep people well over three years, not as well as antidepressant for three years, but better than people who have been taken off an antidepressant and uh, received placebo. Okay. And so Ellen Frank and David Kupfer, who were involved at the MacArthur Foundation for the Mood Disorder Network, reached out to me and, and said, can you do the same thing for cognitive therapy? Can you transform cognitive therapy into an approach that can be delivered once a month, maybe cognitive therapy light, and people can continue to do this? And so I got that money. And what I did with it was I actually got in touch with John Teasdale and Mark Williams and said to them, can we work on this project together? Because John and Mark had been doing some very cool research on mood-dependent memory, differential activation of cognitive constructs. And when we sat down, we thought that this would be a fairly easy remix of take the elements of cognitive therapy, throw out the parts that are tied to, say, weekly appointments and maybe focus on material that can be delivered on a monthly basis. But I remember sitting down with Mark and John for the first time they, they came over to Toronto. And the question that I asked at the table really was, when you've seen people who get it in cognitive therapy, what are they getting? Hmm. What is it that they get that they're then able to do for themselves and continue, in a sense, to become their own therapists? You know, a lot of the literature would suggest that, well, they're getting a therapeutic relationship, they're getting an alliance, they're getting a bond, they're getting a connection and that helps to restore hope. That helps to provide them with a kind of moral sense that they can have some impact on this problem that's been with them for many years. But we didn't really land on that answer. The answer that we landed on was that in cognitive therapy, when we've really seen it work and people take it and run with it, what they get is the ability to step back and watch their thoughts, hmm. to step back and watch their thinking. And that's something which is a very different answer than I think would have been helpful in building just a run-of-the-mill, once-a-month cognitive therapy type of uh, approach. We thought that if we could design a therapy to amplify the capacity of people to do that very thing for themselves repeatedly, to have it available to them, to bring it online when they need to during emotionally charged situations, then we could be much more precise in targeting that mechanism, delivering it, and then seeing you know, whether that actually impacted outcomes. And so we used the money to try to work off that assumption. And then all of a sudden, a number of very interesting influences appeared when we started to talk about this as being our focus. For example, Marshall Linehan was in Cambridge at the time and was, you know, like, curious, like, what are John and Mark doing flying to Toronto to talk with Zindel? What are you guys talking? What are you working on? You know, da, da, da. And then when she heard about this concept, which has been called many things, it's it's decentering, it's being able, disidentifying from mental contents, it's uh, metacognition, metacognitive awareness. She said, you know, there's a guy that actually works on this very thing, and he's using it in the context of treating people with chronic pain. You should check some of his workouts. His name is John Kabat-Zinn. 
<laughs> and that was one of the ways in which the connection was made. But then there are these other, you know, sort of subterranean influences where John Teasdale himself had a fairly active contemplative practice. He was reading works by Gurdjieff. He'd gone to Quaker house meetings. He'd done some Vipassana meditation. Mark Williams himself uh, was an Anglican priest, ordained as oh. an Anglican priest while completing his studies, but had stepped away from it because of the experiences that he had, which I think weren't self-enhancing in that context. So he'd stepped away from it. And in a way, not that different from my experiences with TM. So John was a little bit more of a, of a magnet. And then we wrote a letter to John Kabat-Zinn, basically openly saying, you know, we've, we've read your work, we've admired it. Uh, would you be open to us coming and chatting with you? And before we did that, we actually bought a copy of Full Catastrophe Living. We went to the local bookstore, bought a copy of the book, and started to read through it because the notion of teaching people to meditate as a objective psychiatric treatment for a disabling disorder didn't seem like it was a smart career move for us at the time. Right. And so we wanted to see, like, when you read John's writing about the book, like we, there was an article in the American Journal of Psychiatry and another one, I think, in a pain journal that we read, but we didn't know what the actual protocol was for teaching this. And so in Full Catastrophe Living, we happened upon a number of examples that he gave. There was one example of a man who was driven by routines and ended up washing his car in his driveway at midnight because he had to get through his to-do list of the day. Mm. And eventually seeing that, you know, this to-do list was driving him, but he could stop and observe the thoughts around having to do all this stuff. There was a lot in there around decentering. There was a lot in there about disidentification from mental contents. And we thought, this isn't that far from cognitive therapy. Right. And if mindfulness meditation is a like a Rolls Royce vehicle that allows you to get there compared to like a rickety car that psychotherapy can sometimes be that people leave therapy without necessarily developing metacognitive skills. They develop other things that could be helpful. Why not see if we can wrap a therapy around teaching people to do this very practice and see what happens? Wow. And is that also when you started practicing mindfulness back to your contemplative path or did that come a little bit later um no i didn't start practicing for a while and i tell this to people because it's uh i think instructive it took me a long well a long time i mean it, it didn't take me weeks or months it took me about a year and a half or two to get there because our first understanding of mindfulness meditation was essentially akin to relaxation training mm-hmm we thought that it was something which you teach people to do for themselves and they are able to take it on board. And there were a lot of elements of sort of induction and, um, you know, guided practice and things like that. It was only when I started to run my own groups that I realized how bereft I was in terms of either understanding it or being able to convey the important elements of it to other people. That was the motivator for me. I, I realized I was like way out of my league. Um, and then I started practice. Yeah. And then, so how did your own personal experience of practice, did that influence then the way you developed the program moving forward? Did it change your understanding of what was going on with the program? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it did. I would say there was like a version, like a, a 1.0 and a 2.0. And I think my own practice, and, and this was also consensual with with Mark and John, there were elements that, that we first put into it that had to do with just training decentering, just training the ability to stand back and watch thinking. And then with the ability to watch thinking, which, which we were kind of understanding as an intentional allocation model, so that if you starve processing resources from elaborative cognitive routines like rumination and problem solving, if you can starve those then you can provide greater access to other ways of working with the same kinds of thoughts. Uh, then you can help people from falling into the same depressive habits and, and routines that they might have. So it was very kind of cognitively oriented. Okay, yeah, just to clarify that. So you said your original um, thinking or approach was that, you know, if you're struggling with depression, you get caught up in these kind of thought loops and emotional loops yeah. um, that are taking a lot of brain resources or, yeah. or cognitive resources. And by 
I guess, for example, focusing on the breath or focusing on something else, you're basically just kind of taking away resources yeah. that would normally be sucked into that loop. And that's that's how you were thinking about it. Yeah, that's that's how we were thinking about it. There's good evidence of, of you know, attentional resources and, you know, the brain being sort of like a limited capacity channel where you can only kind of allocate to so many things. And if we could starve, the more well-rehearsed um, automatic depressive thought patterns, and maybe we could allocate to working with thoughts or having a different relationship to thinking. And that was the emphasis in the first part. And we had diagrams of thoughts and attitudes being fused with emotion and then eventually being unfused or decoupled. You know, like we were trying to use graphics in a way that conveyed these ideas to people because, you know, they were also new to us. And, and then after that, we had a pretty standard cognitive therapy emphasis on, well, if people are able to decouple or decenter, what could they then do with their thinking? And what happened was the difference between V1 and V2 of the program was that we recognized the importance of attitude towards mental contents. Hmm. And we wrote much more about allowing and letting be as a way of approaching with curiosity and kindness, whatever shows up in the mind. And that that in itself is very much an important aspect of the work. And we rewrote the sections of the book to emphasize that more, that we were not trying to necessarily get people to engage with their thoughts as much as engage with the attitude of grounding themselves initially, and then from that place approaching with curiosity, with kindness, their experiences, whether it's in the body, whether it's through thinking, whether it's through emotions that come up, and to watch those phenomena as they potentially change over time, to label their qualities, to notice the flux and the ebb and the flow in concepts that are represented in the mind as static, never changing, unyielding, and continually plaguing them. Those, I think, were the main points of, of emphasis that were changed from the first to the second version. And it corresponded with, you know, my going on retreat and discussions with, with John Teasdale and being pushed further and kind of coming back to what the evidence, I guess what we felt comfortable the evidence would allow us to say, because there were so many voices within the contemplative world that were saying so much more. And we had to titrate how much we could believe ourselves and seed into a program that could be helpful and teach in a way that, that was credible. So yeah, that's really interesting. It sounds like, um, I guess what's coming up for me as I'm listening to you describe these processes, it's like the old model, V1 model, was almost thinking of switching train tracks, right? Like your mind can be on this one path, but then you take it away and focus on something else, almost like a distraction, like simple distraction. But then I suppose you could just go back, right? Whereas, you know, version two is really learning to sit with that first path? And through that, do you think that there's a way of undoing somehow the kind of habit patterns that exist there with, with the allowing and acceptance approach? Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, it's not like the V1 work isn't still being promulgated these days. It is. If you look at anxiety bias modification, there is a very strong series of uh, procedures that, that have been labeled under anxiety bias modification where people are trained to, if they see an anxiety cue, to direct their attention elsewhere. Mm -hmm. It's a very easy to train type of skill. Initially, it was just trained in the lab. People would, would see words on the screen and they were then asked to direct their attention elsewhere. And then these cues had a, a less powerful uh, hold and grip on them the next time they saw them. You know, the problem is when they try to evaluate this work in a real world context with people that are much more symptomatic, it does not transfer. Hmm. 
But that approach had a lot of compelling experimental evidence behind it. I think that part of what's happening when people are able to understand allowing and letting be as a kind of approach is that they're developing a different relationship to these affects. And if you think of the previous relationship they had, it's often to eliminate or to suppress. These are painful. These cause mm -hmm. distress. They're not things people want to luxuriate in. And so the, the rudimentary skills and approaches that they have often emphasize those kinds of options. Distract, suppress, eliminate, like want to get rid of this. I don't want to feel this anymore. Never want to feel this. And this is an approach which is not promising that as much as a different relationship, one of familiarity, one of investigation, and one, ultimately one of kindness. And inside that relationship, there are the seeds of its potential undoing, because you see that things are not really unfolding in the way your mind is predicting that they will. That depression or sadness has moments of fluctuation, that there are ways of feeling relief inside those moments, of being able to ground oneself even in times of intensity. These are messages that would never get through to people if they only believed what their minds were broadcasting about what it is like to feel this way. What you were just saying about being able to see um, the spaces, you know, where the, the pattern isn't unfolding necessarily the way that you would predict and things like that. Is that then back to what you were originally talking about, about decentering and kind of observing thoughts as thoughts? And in that process, I suppose, they somewhat disintegrate, or I don't know how you would describe it, but is that where the decentering comes in, in the being able to, to sit with and approach these thoughts with kindness? The decentering really, I think, describes this phenomenon of developing a different relationship to thinking. And mm -hmm. I think in allowing and, and letting be, we can develop a different relationship to emotions and even to sensations in our body that may be intense. And that relationship is is one that I've understood based on what people say coming out of MBCT classes when you when you ask them or qualitative studies that have been published. There have been a number of them. The two big takeaway messages that uh, people report is thoughts are not facts, hmm. and depression is not me. Hmm, it's pretty revolutionary understandings. Yeah, yeah, and um, I think that those are the ways in which people develop a different relationship to the phenomena that are part of their managing depression in, in the light of a kind of residual phase of the disorder, and also having a different relationship to their thinking where they're able to work with it differently than completely believing it or being commanded by it or having to, to act on what pops into the mind. Hmm. And so MBCT you went through the process of, of formalizing that, and um, I suppose there was a manualization process mm. um, and started to be implemented widely and therefore able to be studied and um, has been really very successful in particularly in treating depression relapse, correct? Yeah. Um, which is one of the first things you were mentioning that you were trying to, to work with. So do you want to share the current state of that research clinical research on the efficacy of MBCT with depression? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's important to, to know that we wanted and needed to conduct an RCT before we were willing to publish the treatment manual. A randomized control trial. A randomized control trial, yeah. I mean, these were great ideas, and there were bits and pieces of scientific evidence to support them. But, you know, like, for example, the first time I presented the concept of, of mindfulness meditation in the depression clinic, I presented it to the psychiatrist-in-chief at the time who was sitting there. And I remember walking into his office and he was sitting at this beautiful big mahogany desk, but it was like he was 10 feet away from me. I was on one side, he was the other side. And <laughs> here we were, you know, here we were talking about teaching depressed patients how to meditate or cover depressed patients. And um, it wasn't until we actually had data that people started to take this conversation seriously. And so we felt that in order to publish the book and the treatment manual, we needed to have data that would convince people because it, it was the only way we were going to be convinced. Mm -hmm. um, and so we ran our first study comparing MBCT to treatment as usual and, and found about a 33% benefit in survival times, meaning 
time to the next episode of depression for people who were in MBCT compared to people who received treatment as usual. And would that include antidepressant medication? Anything. Any, any Anything. other treatment? Yeah. Okay. yeah, it was unconstrained. And so we ran that study, and then we published the treatment manual, and then we ran another study that replicated that finding. And then over time, there were about nine other studies that were conducted in other places in Europe. And then I ran a study where I compared MBCT to antidepressant medication and to placebo. And so in, in our study, we treated everyone to remission. In other words, they were depressed. We got them better on an antidepressant. And the folks who got better went into one of three groups. They either stayed on their antidepressant for 18 months, they came off their antidepressant, and they received eight sessions of MBCT and another four follow-up sessions, I believe. Or they came off their antidepressant and they received a pill, which was a placebo. Hmm. So it, it wasn't active. And what we found was that in people who were in recovery, but had a bit of a bumpier ride, in other words, sometimes they had symptoms that peaked a little bit and other times they were well. In those people, MBCT and antidepressant medication were equally effective. And both were superior to the placebo group who had a much higher rate of relapse. So mm -hmm. if you were taken off your antidepressant given placebo, you were relapsing at about 70%. If you had either an antidepressant or you had an antidepressant, came off it and got MBCT, uh, you were relapsing at about 30%. Mm. And that was a very important finding, not because it had ability to talk about antidepressants and MBCT, one being better than the other, et cetera, et cetera. But because it provided more options for people for whom an antidepressant might not be feasible. You know, if, if you're in the first trimester and you're pregnant, you may not want to start an antidepressant. If you have difficult side effects, you may have to come off your antidepressant. And here's something that you can do for yourself that may provide a good measure of protection. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I remember when those um, when that first study came out, that was a really huge finding, as you said, that these were basically having the same impact because I suppose, yeah, for so long in the world of clinical treatment of depression, antidepressants are the gold standard or the best, best thing that we had. So that was so exciting, yeah, to have this other option, uh, a non-pharmaceutical option, and working more with, as as you were saying, the way we approach our thoughts. So it gets me thinking about mechanisms there uh, across the two types of treatment. And so I'm just curious what your current understanding is of, or, or what the field is currently thinking of, the mechanism of antidepressant medication. If, you know, I, I know it's not fully understood, but where the thinking is now about how that is causing the same improvement and help um, that this kind of cognitive therapy might be. You know, that's a, it's a great question. And it's a question of sort of perennial debate. I think four weeks ago or something, there was an article that came out in as a nature neuroscience reports or science reports where I think this is a academic at University College London basically said, you know, the the neurotransmitter monoamine hypotheses or other serotonin hypotheses of depression actually don't hold water. Right. And so SSRIs are a kind of a bit of a hoax in the sense that the theory underlying how they work doesn't seem to really add up when you look at the studies. And so I think when we speak about antidepressants, it could be a hot button issue for some people, but I think we need to distinguish between efficacy and the theoretical background between them. I think the efficacy is there. I think they work. I think they work for people as you increase the severity of the depression itself. I think you increase the likelihood of a therapeutic response to an antidepressant. And as far as if it's serotonin transporter uptake changes or other things like that, it's still a little bit murky, but it doesn't mean that the whole thing is sort of false. Right. And and I think that for me, the best evidence that I've seen is a study that Helen Mayberg and published uh, in what, 2004, I think, where she compared cognitive therapy and antidepressant treatment for depression. And what she found, this is a PET study, and we were involved in providing the cognitive therapy and um, she was involved with the, with the, the neuroimaging and the uh, antidepressant. And what she found was that there's this region of the brain called BA, I think it's 25 or 26, where if people respond to treatments for depression, that region becomes more active. And the antidepressant medication seemed to activate this region 
by moving from the bottom of the brain to the top of the brain. Hmm. So by activating limbic structures and activating uh, more subcortical structures, leading to activation of BA25. Cognitive therapy, on the other hand, activated BA25, but it took a different route. It went from the top down. Hmm. So it utilized, I think, either like hippocampal structures, maybe cingulate-related structures, to blaze a path down towards BA25. And if you think about it, the activities inside an antidepressant versus the kind of cognitive-heavy um, activities inside uh, cognitive therapy, it makes sense that they're leveraging different parts of the brain, both of them trying to activate BA25. And if you look at studies of deep brain stimulation, where they implant an electrode into this region, it's BA25 that they're trying to activate. And when they turn on the current, people do report um, a significant change in in mood, a significant change, even in perception of, of seeing colors more broadly. And so I think there are different pathways to activate parts of the brain that are involved with regulating emotions and maybe even regulating some of the neurovegetative features of depression. They may not be the same because the procedures differ. Yeah, that's fascinating. I had um, I had forgotten about that work about the, I think it's called the subgenual interior Subgenual cingulate, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting in, in that it you know, it kind of puts a pinpoint in in a region of the brain that seems to be really relevant. And and at the same time, I think so much of these cognitive patterns um, that anyone experiences, uh, you know, with any kind of rumination or thought patterns are just widely distributed right across the whole brain. So yeah. that's so interesting, like how one specific region could be affecting something that actually is such a global phenomenon. I heard about that also recently that there's thinking now that the serotonin hypothesis around depression is kind of being overturned or it's not as solid as they thought. Maybe just to flesh out for the audience, I think that that uh, hypothesis developed because many effective antidepressants acted on the serotonin system in a way that increased the amount of serotonin available for processing. So therefore, it made sense to think that maybe the problem was some sort of deficit. I was just going to say that I mean, that narrative is there, and it's also been promoted by pharmaceutical companies mm -hmm. to have a very shiny kind of explanation for why uh, antidepressants are going to be effective. And I think there's, it's a double-edged sword, you know? So for some people, it's destigmatizing to think about depression as a chemical imbalance. And if it's a chemical imbalance, then Prozac is the perfect antidote because it restores the balance. So there is that that marketing tinge narrative, which, which I, as I said, you know, it, it's got both sides uh, and it's allowed a lot more people to come to treatment with antidepressants. It's a lot, allowed a lot more people to see their depression as not being a personal weakness. But when you actually look at the, the studies of changes in serotonin and the time interval by which antidepressants start to have their effect. It could be that serotonin changes happen a lot sooner than four to six weeks that are usually required before you see someone uh, starting to improve. Mm -hmm. You know, these are sort of discrepancies in the narrative and that's just one feature of the whole discussion. Maybe we can talk a little bit about specifically why MBCT and mindfulness might be helpful in the case of relapse. Is it just a different setting after you've reached, you know, wellness, a clinical version of, of wellness? Is it a different uh, container, I suppose, uh, the way that you might precipitate into another episode of depression rather than the experience of being in an initial episode? Yeah. You know, I, I think one of the questions that we ran into when we were developing MBCT was, well, why not just do more cognitive therapy? Mm -hmm. Because we know that it works and we don't need to go through this whole hoopla of teaching people to meditate and do this and that. And I think one of the ways of understanding it is that people find themselves in a different phenomenological state when they're in remission from depression. So if you think of cognitive therapy, you often need negative thinking and harsh judgmental thoughts and very rigid attitudes 
to be present as the grist for the mill of the therapeutic work. When people are in remission, they often don't have these kinds of thoughts about themselves floating around. They may be more um, more integrated. Um, they may be more functional in the ways that they want to be. They might have extended periods of feeling well. But I think the risk is that for people who are vulnerable, setbacks can sometimes tip them into a way of thinking that resembles how they viewed themselves when they were depressed. And when vulnerable people get tipped into that way of thinking, it can come on very quickly and very suddenly. So, of course, they can always just pull out their cognitive therapy worksheets and their therapy materials and get to work and address their thoughts in that way. But it could have been nine months ago. It could have been two years ago. And how much of that is going to stay with them? Mm -hmm. With mindfulness, you're actually practicing it every day. And you do not need the negativity, the failure, the judgments to be what your mind is working with. It can just be whatever shows up as you intend to watch your breathing or walk with intention or engage in an activity and pay attention to it. As your mind is taken away elsewhere, as your mind wanders, there is the opportunity to recognize that in return and strengthen that capacity for being grounded and present with whatever shows up. Even when you're at the bank in a, a long line, although who goes to the bank these days because <laughs> so much of this stuff is done online. I've got to stop using that example. You know, if you're waiting to fill your car up with gas, which we still do, and you notice irritation, that can become a focus to work with. And so you're keeping these skills fresh and accessible and practicing, let's say, on low intensity stimuli. So if something really does come at you as a setback, as it does in all of our lives, those skills are still available and they would have been, I think, a little bit more finely tuned than having to dust off the CBT approaches and, and, and reapplying them. I think that's one of the beauties of the mindfulness approach that we try to emphasize to, to our folks. Mm, I like that, keeping it fresh. Yeah. I also love how the skills translate you know, you can work in daily little experiences, and then you've kind of got those tools and skill sets just ready for more destabilizing experiences, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. Um, I know you've done a lot of work, too, with Norm Farb, who, who I've also recently spoken to uh, for the podcast. Mm. I don't know if you want to share anything about your collaborative work with him, maybe around brain networks and default mode and interoception, anything like that. And also, I know you're working on a book with him, too, so I'd love to hear about that. Yeah. So I guess here's where I go rogue a little bit. Great. And I'll tell you <laughs> I'll tell you where that comes from, because it's really connected to the last thing we talked about, which is practice. So when we developed MBCT, you know, I was like hardcore about you know, 40 minutes of practice. A body scan that's less than 40 minutes is not a body scan. You know, sitting meditation. Not... And there was that... Um, I, I guess, attachment to an ideal of how practice should take place. And I've stepped back from that. But in the early days, you know, I would say that if I was running a group and we got to session eight, and so what do people think that they're going to be able to do as their ongoing practice? And a lot of people would honestly say, I just can't see myself practicing 30 or 40 minutes a day. I mean, I might do that once or twice on the weekend, but I, I just, and like my heart would sink and like, mm. oh my God, this person's not going to, you know, be able to benefit from the sunshine that this practice provides to them in their lives? Or have I done a bad job as an instructor? And um, I mean, it didn't last for long, but I, I did step away from that. And I think part of the reason I stepped away from that is because I was routinely seeing how little people practice formal mindfulness meditation after the course was over. However, they did do other things. And what they did was um, subscribe to informal practices so the three-minute breathing space is probably the most widely subscribed practice after an MBCT class that people say they will carry on. Okay. Can you describe that briefly? Uh, can I guide you in it? That would be wonderful. Okay. And then we can, we can see what you think about it. Okay, great. Okay. So just take a second to maybe fully arrive and um, find a way of sitting that's comfortable and supportive.
And then when you feel ready, perhaps shifting your attention from sitting into looking into the mind. Perhaps asking yourself, what is my experience right now? What thoughts are here? What feelings are present? What bodily sensations are making themselves known? And as best you can, simply allowing all of these elements to be here. Watching, observing them from one moment to the next. And now seeing if you can let go of the contents of mind and bringing your attention to a single pointed focus on the breath at the belly. Feeling breathing right here in this part of your body. Feeling the belly rise as you breathe in. Feeling the belly fall as you breathe out. And just giving the mind this one thing to do as best you can, staying with this gentle rhythm of rising on the in-breath and falling on the out-breath, moment by moment, breath by breath. And now seeing if you can expand your attention around your belly, around your breathing, allowing the attention to radiate outwards into the whole body. And feeling the whole body sitting. Feeling the whole body breathing. From the crown of your head to the soles of your feet. One whole breath, one whole body. And then when you're ready, just opening up your eyes and returning your attention to the room. Thank you, Zindel. You're welcome. That was wonderful. I've never been able to meditate in the middle of a podcast interview. <laughs> that was lovely. <laughs> well, you know, that's like the three-minute breathing space is virtue. People have said they've gone to work and sat in a bathroom stall and done this very thing because they can just insert it in the middle of their day. And it, it's like a very brief, but also compact way of moving these attentional foci in very broad and very narrow and in very broad ways again over a period of a couple of minutes. Yeah, I really, there's a lot in there in a very short time. Um, yeah. You know, the kind of acceptance, awareness and acceptance of whatever's happening and yeah. then a narrow focus and then a broadening focus. Yeah, very calming. Yeah. Thank you. That was wonderful. So I, I think this gets back to going rogue with Norm. So I've really learned, I think, that because very few people continue with the practices as such in MBCT, the longer formal practices. Many people continue with some of these three-minute breathing space or other everyday mindfulness practices, that it's really important to provide people with access points to practice. But something bigger than access points, um, not necessarily to practice mindfulness, but if we move back and understand one of the common features of many, many, many contemplative practices is that there is a way of which they connect people to sensation. And sensation is such an important feature that we were thinking, Norman and I, of 
seeing whether sensory processing can be made available to people more broadly and not just through the practice of mindfulness or not just through the practice of yoga or not just through a lot of the the ways in which contemplative practices have been uh, popularized. And so along with that, there's some very new and interesting science around interceptive awareness or science of interoception that suggests that when we are able to connect with sensation, and I'm talking about ambient ubiquitous sensation, not any particular type of sensation, there is this natural quieting of midline prefrontal structures that are ordinarily kind of working and dominating the brain's processing and taking away activation from lateralized uh, sensory processes more at the back of the brain. And so most people think of the brain in terms of like left-right dichotomies, and we're trying to promote a back-to-front dichotomy mm. where there could be a rebalancing of the flow of information so that more of the sensory processing from the back can be amplified rather than subdued before the front parts of the brain decide what has to happen with that. And that people can just dwell in some of that input before deciding what to do with it or before it's naturally taken up by the more frontal parts. And then when you do that, we've just published a paper in Neuroimage Clinical about, what, three, four months ago, showing that people who are depressed tend to have an exaggerated pattern of relying much more on prefrontal regions when exposed to sad emotion in the, in the scanner. And that people who are able to step back from that had a much lower rate of relapse over two years. Mm. And people who are able to connect and feel some of the sensation or sensory aspects of the sadness that they were feeling had better relapse um, outcomes compared to people who, when they felt sad, just fell back into the usual emotion regulation strategies. Well, that's exciting. So just to highlight what you mentioned, so folks with depression who were more able to shift their focus to internal sensations had better outcomes in terms of less relapse? Yes. Yeah, like like we have one correlation with insula activation being inversely related to Beck depression inventory scores. Interesting, yeah. So how do you do this for people who are not going to sign up to meditate, who are not going to sign up to practice mindfulness? And that's the question that comes out of finding access points and helping people to forage for sensation which ironically is right in front of them and often obscured. And that and some of the research on the insula and the present moment pathway seem to suggest that these could be ways of offering an alternative place to stand when confronted with phenomena. So those are like the tentative outlines of the book, but that's what we're gonna try to communicate. I know you've also done a lot of work using digital platforms and ways to allow these practices to be more accessible to more people. Do you want to share the current state of what you've been involved in with that? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, it's been really interesting uh, because the, the, the starting point for a lot of the digital work once again comes down to access. And when you have a disorder that's as prevalent as depression or anxiety, and you see that it's so large, there's always going to be a mismatch between the number of people who need care and the number of people who can provide it, even if you end up training uh, a lot, a lot, a lot of therapists. And so I've worked really beautifully with Sona Dimidjian to digitize mindfulness-based cognitive therapy so that people could access it uh, via a browser-based program and watch um, sessions that require about an hour and a half of seat time and we've tried to replicate the experience that they would receive if they were coming in person to a hospital or a clinic or a private practice. 
and it's been um, it's been challenging in a way because there is a uh, like a romantic tendency inside the meditation community to say that you know things cannot be codified. Mm. Workbooks are objects of suspicion. This has to be something which is constructed in the moment creatively and. I understand that, but if that's all that it is, it's going to be really hard to communicate it to the next generation who might want to take this on. And so we were very careful when we tried to digitize MBCT to to get input from people like Sharon Salzberg and John Kabat-Zinn and, and others who, who reviewed and took a look at our materials. And what we kept at the heart of it was really the, the practice and the inquiry, unpacking the practice so that people could see what's the relevance of eating a raisin for my struggles with depression? What's the relevance of focusing on my left knee for my struggles with depression? Mm. And so they they get to practice and they get to watch myself and Sona in a group where we lead people in, in answering and discussing some of these same questions. It's been very interesting. and we've, we've evaluated the mindful mood balance approach and, and found in a study that we published in 2020 that just adding it to the usual depression care that people receive in an HMO led to about a 30% decrease of depression scores in people who are already receiving either an antidepressant or work with a behavioral health specialist. Wow. And so we're very encouraged by the fact that it could be made more accessible. Now, I think one of the problems is that technology changes and I think some people might feel that like a browser-based program is a total dinosaur <laughs> because people want things either on apps or they want to have their content broken up into 10-minute chunks. Mm-hmm. And yet you know that the integrity of the material itself and how it needs to be taught can't really be, I don't know, can it be taught in 10-minute chunks and still have its effectiveness? I think like really clever minds are going to have to struggle with that going forward. Yeah, that's great. So you haven't turned it into an app no, it's still browser. No, okay, still great. old school, yeah. old school browser. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was thinking about young folks today, and you know, we hear so much about the really striking increase in anxiety and depression in that population. And I'm just wondering if you have specific thoughts about the challenges that they're dealing with, or if you've interacted with that community around these mindfulness approaches. Um, I think they're growing up in a different environment. You know, when I was starting out, it was like you would get something to read in a brown paper bag sent to you from Menlo Park, California. It could have been pornography. (laughs) It turns out it was soul travel. Maybe that's like spiritual pornography. I don't know. But it was hidden. It was, it was, you know, and maybe, maybe the hiddenness was part of the attraction. I don't know. But these days that's not the case. Like people are growing up, meditation, mindfulness, yoga, uh, wellness practices, apps are part of the landscape. And I think that's really, really good because it's not stigmatizing to access these things, to do them for yourself. I think the prospects of doing them for reasons related to health rather than reasons to spirituality are seen as equally valid. But I think that when you dive a little bit deeper into the usage and user statistics, what you find is that the vast majority of people skim the surface of utilization. Only smaller amounts of users actually move past, you know, the first couple of pages and stay with the program. And yet I think that this is more a feature of our time where people prefer to read headlines versus a full news story, where people prefer to get sound bites compared to context. And so I'm not saying that that's like a bad thing and it has to change. I think we have to find a way to work inside of that context to come across in ways that message the real profound potential of all of these practices. And maybe, you know, what I've noticed is with younger populations, sometimes it's much better to start with movement Mm -hmm. rather than starting with, you know, sit on a pillow and close your eyes because sometimes that doesn't get any traction. And that's where I think access points related to sense foraging can play a huge role because sensing and sensory experiences are something that anyone can have access to. And it can sometimes take away the pressure for people to 
find the thing inside meditation that they think other people want to hear about or that they're looking for. And if we can maybe make it initially as a conversation about sense foraging, finding points of access, it can lead to further practice down the road. And and I think what's needed are these kind of portals into people's engagement. One last thing. Um, I know we're coming up on our time. Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking about the concept of self, you know, so, so central in, in Buddhist philosophy and, you know, certain practitioners of mindfulness will go down that path about deconstructing the self. And identity feels like a really central part of depression or the experience of depression. Mm. Um, so I'm wondering if, uh, if MBCT or your approach goes there at all with um, the concepts of self, or is that kind of a different plane than that works on? What would you guess? Uh, I would guess it doesn't go there explicitly, but it might be happening implicitly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's nothing in our curriculum that talks about not self. Right. But there's a lot in our curriculum that talks about not identifying with mental contents. Right. And so as you start to see that the ideas put forward by the mind are sometimes not really experienced in that way when you're investigating or exploring um, sensations or emotions or even beliefs. Um, you can do that at the level of individual thoughts or watch individual thoughts that have a strong emotional charge and then see yourself, watch them kind of enter the mind and float past without you having to do something about them. If you build up enough of those thoughts, one on top of another, I think you start to get at a concept like self. You start to get at a concept like identity. And then if you can step back from that in the same way, then you start to see that that self itself, self itself, right, is a construction of sorts, is, is a thing that is also being presented by the mind that may be different than um, how you're living. So it does come through in that way, but it's not it's not really touched on, and I think for good reason in terms of the curriculum anyways. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm also remembering uh, what you said in the beginning about people who come out of this practice, that one of their big take-homes is depression is not me, right? Yeah. Which is, that's the self That's already, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. I'm kind of curious just to ask you before we sign off, mm. how you feel that your practice and your engagement with all of this space has changed your life and your your personal experience, if you have reflections. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I still practice. I, I still sit in the mornings. And um, sometimes, you know, when people ask that question, I think if I'd get it at, at trainings or, or retreats, I think they want to hear about dramatic changes. And I can't, I can't say that I've noticed dramatic changes. I'll say I, I noticed some things have fallen off. Hmm. And those, I think, are connected to right speech. So being critical of other people, being judgmental of other people, it's far less reflexive than it used to be, and it's far less comforting. Hmm. I've noticed that. I'm not a saint, but I've noticed that. And I, I, I also think um, there's just more of a sense of a responsibility to take care of other things that I can take care of, you know, locally or to be helpful. So I think there's something of a right view um, that informs a lot of my behavior. You know, sometimes if I'm, you know, running around and just doing, 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 I, I can remind myself to be more deliberate. And that's that's also a big change. I'd say those are the things that are kind of salient to me. I think on the outside, I don't know what other people would say. That's always the test, right? That is <laughs> a test. It's a test you. of sorts. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much, Zindel. This has been really wonderful to chat. And thank you so much for all of your groundbreaking and very important work in, in this field. And thank you for taking the time to be on the show today. Thanks, Wendy. It's a, it's a pleasure to talk about all of these topics because they intersect in such interesting ways. And uh, it's always great to discuss how that happens. Thank you. This episode was edited and produced by me and Phil Walker. And music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, 
please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. And if something in this conversation sparked insight for you, let us know. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org, where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. If you value these conversations, please consider supporting the show. You can make a donation at mindandlife.org under support. Any amount is so appreciated and it really helps us create this show. Thank you for listening.